Hi, my name is Wills, and I'm the youth pastor here at Melanie Park. Have you ever heard the song, The Best is Yet to Come, by Frank Sinatra? While its theology and message are a little dodgy, the sentiment of the title rings true, not only for young lovers, but also for all who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, the best truly is yet to come. Now, up to this point in our series, entitled God With Us, From Garden to City, we've done a lot of looking back, and rightfully so. Over the past four weeks, we've seen God's presence in the Garden of Eden, his glory in both the tabernacle and Solomon's temple for a while, and eventually, in fulfillment of many prophecies, God sent his son to earth to dwell among us as a man. After a relatively short earthly ministry, Jesus fulfilled the promise that the Messiah would suffer and die as a perfect sacrifice for all who would believe in him. Before dying, though, he made a few promises to his followers. One, that after he left, he would go and prepare a place for them. Two, that he would one day return to gather them and bring them to live with him forever. And three, that he would send the Spirit as a comforter and counselor to help them live out their callings together while he was away. And by way of reminder, we currently live in the age between Jesus' ascension back to heaven and his return. This means, as Todd alluded to last week, that we are responsible as a spirit-filled community to be the hands and feet of Christ while we wait for his return. We have done a lot of looking back in the past, in the last four messages, but this morning, it is my privilege to take us to a passage that turns our gaze forward to the future. A passage that gives a glimpse of how Jesus has been working to keep his promise to his followers that he is preparing a place for them. A passage that shows a few ways in which God intends to restore what was broken in the fall and which clearly reveals God's intention to fulfill his eternal purpose to dwell among a people he has made his own. So I invite you to open your Bible to Revelation 21, and we will walk through this chapter together and a little bit of 22, asking the Lord to make clear to us what he wants us to know so that we can live hope-filled lives as we eagerly wait for the day when the things written about in these chapters become our reality. Now let's read Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Before we dive too deeply into chapter 21, the first thing I'd like to note is that this chapter begins after redemptive history has ended. Let me explain that. Back at the fall, at creation, God kicked the people out of the garden, pronounced a curse, and yet also made a promise to send a man to earth to crush the head of the serpent who deceived the woman. Those of us who have spent some time in the Bible will recall that when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled at least partially that promise. He bruised the serpent's head and removed the sting of death for all believers. 
but he allowed Satan to continue operating on earth. When we read chapter 20 of Revelation, the one just preceding where we will be spending our time this morning, we see that Jesus ultimately fulfills the promise to crush Satan's head. In a vision of things still in the future relative to us today, John saw Satan bound and cast into the abyss for a thousand years. Then he was released to gather a massive army with the goal of fighting against Jesus. But when his army surrounded the encampment of the saints, fire came down from heaven and consumed that army. After his army was destroyed, the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Then John saw the dead standing before the great white throne where they were judged for their works. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And this ends redemptive history. After the great white throne judgment, there will no longer be an option for repentance and salvation. And the Lord will then usher in the eternal state. And that brings us to chapter 21. Satan, his followers, and everyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life have been removed, cast into the lake of fire. All that is left now is for God to create a new heaven and a new earth where he can dwell eternally with those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's exactly what we see in these two verses. John sees a new heaven and a new earth, the old ones having passed away, and the new Jerusalem coming down as the capital city of the new heaven and new earth. When the new heaven and new earth actually arrive, and they will someday soon, they will usher in a new kind of history one marked entirely by righteousness and holiness. Let's look at the next three verses. Verses, uh, actually, verses three and four. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. This is an incredible passage. I'd like to point out two important features from it. First, when the new Jerusalem arrives, God will be in it. And he will use this city as the place where he dwells eternally with his people. Second, when we are with God in this new Jerusalem, we will no longer have any experience of pain or death. In our first message in this series, Brian told us that God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people he has made his own. This claim has in part been accomplished by the efforts God has made to dwell among his people in the past, in the garden, in the tabernacle and temple, in the flesh and through his spirit. But these efforts have always been tainted by our sin and have been cut short by human death. Even today, with the forgiveness we've experienced because of Jesus' sacrifice and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside us, we at times still feel distance between ourselves and God. But in the New Jerusalem, there will be no distance, felt or otherwise. In that city, God will be there, gloriously present forever. 
Not only will he be there, he will also be with us. His dwelling will be with humanity. He will live with us. We will be his people and he will be with us and will be our God. It's the cry of many hearts to be with him, to see him, and to be like him. And it is the hope of Christianity that one day this will take place. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. Here we read, God himself will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How tender is that? We have a picture of a father running to his child who's been hurt, wrapping his arms around him and wiping the tears from the child's eyes. One of the sad realities of this fallen world is the presence of tears, whether they make it out of our eyes or not. And they come as a result of death, trials, and pain. But when we get to the place where we will eternally dwell with God, he will personally, it seems, wipe every tear from our eyes. He will not be a distant father. He won't tell us, toughen up or walk it off. He will wipe our tears away, help us forget the pain of the past, and will no longer allow anything that causes his children pain. Now, when I see the phrase, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away, in verse four, my mind goes back to the Garden of Eden where death was introduced, along with grief, crying, and pain. In that context, God had promised Adam that on the day he ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And sure enough, after the fruit was consumed, death was introduced to humanity, and it, along with pain, has plagued us ever since. But when we get to the new Jerusalem, God will have caused the previous things to pass away. Revelation 20, 14 even says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And there will be no longer any death or pain. Let's continue on to verses 5 through 8. We read here, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I realize that up to this point, I've been using the words us and we quite a bit while talking about those who God is choosing to dwell with in the New Jerusalem. And if you have been wondering who is included in the us group, this passage will help. The section actually mentions two groups of people, those who will live with God in the New Jerusalem and those who will end up in the lake of fire. Let's talk about the ones whose tears will be wiped away by the Father. In this section, the people are identified with two phrases, those who are thirsty 
and those who conquer. At first glance, this seems like an unhelpful description. But if we go to a couple other passages in the New Testament, what is fuzzy will be brought into focus. First, let's read the second half of verse 6 again. He says, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Here, God promises that those who thirst for the water he offers will be totally satisfied when they are allowed to drink freely from the spring of the water of life. I don't know about you, but when I was thinking about this, my mind went to John chapter 4, where Jesus met the woman at the well. After a brief exchange where Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for water from Jacob's well, he eventually told her that everyone who drinks from this water the water in the well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up for eternal life. That's in John chapter 4, 13 and 14. Now, a little while later in the Gospel of John, in a different setting, we read that on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. That's from John 7, 37 to 39. And there you have it. While Jesus was ministering, he invited the woman and anyone else who was thirsty to drink from the water he offered. That means to believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing to have life in his name. And of course, as we learned last week, Jesus sent his spirit to dwell among those who would put their faith in Jesus to comfort them in his absence, to teach them what his words meant, and to empower them for service until he returns. Thus, those who thirst and turn to Jesus for salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit are the ones who will be satisfied, given eternal life, and invited to dwell in the new Jerusalem with God forever. Second, there's a reference in Revelation 21.7 to the one who conquers. It goes on to say that these conquerors will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So who are these conquerors, and what does it mean to conquer? Let's look at 1 John 5, 1 through 5, to see if we can find some clarity. Here we read, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what the love of God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There you have it. The one who conquers is the one who has put his or her faith in Jesus, has been born again, and who lives out their faith in obedience 
to God's commands. So the two descriptions of people who will be in heaven are the same. Those who are thirsty and those who conquer are those who trust Jesus for salvation. But there's a group who will not be invited in. Worse, actually, they will be cast into what John here calls the lake of fire and sulfur. The place, according to Jesus, that was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. You can find that in Matthew 25, 41. And in verse 8, an entire list of words describing these people is given. This list includes cowards, faithless, immoral people, and liars. But based on what we know about those who will be welcomed in the new Jerusalem, this is just a representative list of those who have not put their faith in Jesus. So those who have been unwilling to admit their thirst, who have tried to satisfy their eternal longings with fleeting temporal things, are the ones who will be eternally separated from God. In another place, Paul confirms this notion by saying that some will not have an inheritance with the saints. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, we read, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. This seems like an ultimate tragedy. You think of all the people in the world, like including us, that meet some of those descriptions, and, and it really is a tragedy to be eternally separated from God. But in the very next verse, Paul says, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that great news? There is hope for every sinner to be saved during their lifetime or until Jesus returns. Even better, in 1 Timothy 2.4, we learn that God does not want any to perish. Rather, he wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if you are here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, now is the time to do it. You can move from that list to the other list. You can become one who admits your thirst and becomes a conqueror. When we admit that we are sinners and in need of a Savior, and when we believe that Jesus died to save sinners, now we're going to turn our attention to the physical description that John gives of the New Jerusalem. And while I point out a few things from this next section, the main point I want to make is that this is a real city that will one day come down from heaven with features that are beyond our wildest imagination. So strap in while we read Revelation 21, 9 through 21. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled, the seven, filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. 
Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelve amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. An angel gave John a glimpse of the new Jerusalem, and it is beautiful. It was described earlier as being like a bride adorned for her husband, and then here it is actually called the bride, the wife of the lamb. She is arrayed with God's glory and has a radiance like jewels, like a bride on her wedding day. She is set on 12 foundations which were adorned with jewels and has high walls constructed of radiant, transparent jasper with gates made of huge individual pearls. And the city itself and its main street are made of pure gold, which is also transparent. The city measured 12,000 stadia, which in miles is 1,400 miles. And it's 1,400 miles cubed. The length of one of the walls would run from Lubbock to around San Francisco, or from here to Lake Superior, if you want to go the other direction. This idea that the length, width, and height are equal may cause some of us to think of the most holy place in both the tabernacle and the temple. These rooms were also square. And the one in the temple was entirely covered on the inside with gold. So this new Jerusalem is a fitting place for God's glory to reside forever. And really, when we consider a city like this, all we can say is, wow, I can't wait to see it myself. But there's more. Let's look at verses 20 through 22 to 27 and briefly notice that this city doesn't have a temple and it doesn't need the sun or moon. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. A lexicon that I like to use defines a temple as a place or structure specifically associated with or set apart for a deity. It's fitting then that there will be no temple proper in the New Jerusalem because God and Jesus will have it all as their dwelling place. They will have a throne, but they will not be restricted to a room like God was in the back of Solomon's temple. No, the entire city and beyond will be their home. One thing that makes this unique is the access that we, as people who live in the city, will have access to God. One of the things that makes this unique is the access that we will have to God in that city. Now, in the Garden of Eden, it seemed that God came and went as he pleased, In the tabernacle, only the high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place, and then only one time a year. But at the time of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And all believers were and are given unhindered access to God now. But in the new Jerusalem, it'll be different from what we experience now. We will eternally be in his presence. I'd like to make one more comment on this section before moving on. I just want us to try to imagine a city. 1,400 miles cubed, surrounded by walls of pure, transparent jasper, and paved with pure, transparent gold. Then imagine the glory of God filling the city. And notice the lamb shining as a lamp in the middle of the city. Earlier in Revelation, John saw a vision of Jesus in his glory and described him this way. He was like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. That's in chapter 1, 13 through 16. This is the Jesus that will be illuminating the city wrapped in gold with white hair, bronze feet, holding seven stars, his face shining like the sun at full strength. Now see, all of that light and glory emanating from Jesus and the Father are bouncing off the walls. They're bouncing off the facets of the jewels and passing through the transparent walls and streets, refracting in every direction. This city will be unlike anything we have ever experienced, and it will be so much more than anything we can imagine. And it will be in this context 
that we will enjoy fellowship with God for all eternity. And of course, that's not all, but I'm afraid we're running out of time, so I'll have to read the first five verses of chapter 22 and comment on them quickly before leaving us with a final exhortation. Chapter 22, 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Verse 5 of Revelation 22 shows us, the first five verses of Revelation 22 show us a river of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It flows down the main street of the city and the tree of life grows on both sides of the river. This mention of the tree of life should cause us to think back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were mercifully ejected before being able to partake of the tree of life and live forever in their fallen state. But here with the work of Christ complete and the devil and all who reject Christ cast into the lake of fire, the fruit of the tree of life is now freely available. It will bear 12 kinds of fruit, and its leaves, the text says, will be for healing the nations. Verse 3 shows us that in the New Jerusalem, there will no longer be any curse. Though a curse was put on the serpent, the woman, and the ground in Genesis after the fall, which ultimately brought humanity suffering, pain, tears, and death, Jesus has taken the curse away, and heaven will be free from any curse, and any effect of the curse which has plagued humanity for so long. Verses 3 and 4 also show that God and the Lamb will have a throne in the city, and we, his servants, will worship him. What's more, we will finally and forever see his face. As we draw to an end, I now want to answer the question, so what? How are we as believers who find ourselves in Lubbock, Texas in 2024 supposed to live in light of this glorious vision of what is to come? I think Warren Wearsby phrases it and answer well, so I'll read an excerpt from his Be Victorious study. He says, We must keep expecting Jesus Christ to return. Three times in this closing chapter, John wrote, I, Christ, am coming quickly. But believers also ought to invite lost sinners to trust Christ and drink the water of life. Indeed, when the church lives in expectancy of Christ's return, such an attitude provokes ministry and evangelism as well as purity of heart. We want to tell others of the grace of God. A true understanding of Bible prophecy should both motivate us to obey God's word and to share God's invitation with the lost world. Frank Sinatra had something right when he sang, the best is yet to come. For those of us who love the Lord Jesus 
and look forward to his appearing, we can be assured that the best truly is yet to come. And we should allow this to motivate us to live wholeheartedly for him here on this earth and invite others to join us in experiencing and enjoying the grace of God now as we wait with hopeful expectation for the coming of a beautiful city where we will spend eternity with God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your love. We're also grateful for your word that teaches us about incredible things to come. Lord, thank you for all the believers here whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, motivate us to pursue lives of purity and service with one another as we wait for your return and as we wait for the coming of this new city where we will dwell with you forever. Lord, give us eyes to see the people around us that need to hear about the grace that is freely offered. Help us to meet those needs and be faithful to share with others what we know. Pray these things in Jesus' name.